What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm John Ford, and here is what is ahead. The market's come a long way since the pandemic was declared exactly one year ago today. We will look at how far and how fast we've come and ask the question, what comes after this incredible momentum? Plus, how's this for a rally? Bitcoin's up 627% in the past year. We'll look at the factors that could keep that going or not. And two under-the-radar retail plays to buy now for the economic reopening. Trust us, they are very under-the-radar. But we begin with the markets. Dom Chu, those numbers. What's glaring on the radar right now, John, is the record highs that we're seeing in the marketplace right now. You can see green across the board, outperformance in the Nasdaq composite up 2.5%. But the real standouts from a perspective of just relativity is the Dow Industrials, because that's a record high for that yellow star there, and the S&P 500 hitting a record high as well. So again, two record highs and some outperformance. And by the way, the Nasdaq is still about 6% below its record highs from earlier this year. One other place that's hitting a record high, the Russell 2000 Small Cap Index. That particular ETF that tracks at the IWM, again, record high there, up 83 84% over the course of the past year period. Compare that to even the Nasdaq 100, the biggest cap names in the Nasdaq, up a very respectable 63%. So again, that outperformance really coming, especially just so far in 2021. Watch small caps. And then the IPO of the day. Some people call it the Amazon of South Korea, Coupang. They opened up for cheering at $63.50, thereabouts. You can see kind of like this move here about, it did hit as high, again, just a little while ago, as 69 bucks a share. But again, at these levels, we were talking at some of the highs, over a $100 billion valuation, the latest in a traditional IPO, by the way, John. It feels like such a long time since we've talked about a roadshow indicated level, pricing above level, that kind of thing, without having to talk about direct listings or SPACs. So keep an eye on Coupang. Those shares up, again, from their $35 issue price. Back over to you guys. Should we even call them road shows anymore? <clears throat> Stream shows? Zoom shows? Zoom shows, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> Today not only marks the one-year anniversary of COVID being declared a pandemic, but it's also the one-year anniversary of the end of a decade-long bull market. And that'll do it, Carl. Bear market for the Dow. And at least at least for the Dow. Uh, S&P did not quite there, but we are going to put an end to the 11-year bull run in the Dow as it uh, closes right around uh, 23.5. That bull came back fast. Joining me now with more on how the market changed over the last year are Sarah Ketterer, CEO of Causeway Capital Management, and Troy Gayeski, the co-chief investment officer at Skybridge Capital. Guys, good afternoon. Sarah, I mean, given the... The, the short kind of stumble that that bull had and then the search for yield that we've got right now. What's the most reasonable thing for an investor to do? Well, speaking as an active manager, go active. And remember, in an index, you get what has performed well. And the really striking effect that has occurred from market lows of last March is that cyclical stocks have led the way. The materials, the consumer discretionary, the industrials, they have powered ahead. And the stocks left behind were in more defensive areas. And 
investors may have wanted to be defensive, but that was the wrong move. And for, for example, for Causeway's International Fund and Global Fund, we've made a lot of money for our investors by being very cyclical at the time when the market got very depressed in March and then began as vaccines came on to anticipate economic recovery. So after this, once you take some profit in the cyclicals, it may be time to move back into more defensive stocks. Hmm. Yeah, well, I, I can see where you're coming from there. Uh, and Troy, I, I got to wonder, though, because often when there's a downturn of some sort uh, or when there's an upturn, people say, OK, stock pickers market. If you had just piled into the S&P a year ago and continued to do that, you'd have done extraordinarily well versus trying to pick what was going to work or not work during this covid period. It's been pretty extraordinary. So what do you think people should do from here? Yeah, well, look, we, we, there's nothing wrong with having some broader index exposure. Remember, through most of the not post pandemic period, but the actual global financial crisis period, you know, what's been continually elevating equity multiples has been Fed largesse and central bank largesse. So there's nothing wrong with having broader index exposure. But to your other guest's point, you know, right now, if you can pick up some defensive value exposure, you know, we're very heavy in distressed post reorg equity right now coming out of the crisis. And some of those names are really ripping, whether they're in gaming or leisure. Uh, but also pairing that with the barbell approach in, in transformational technologies or, or new asset classes that are poised to continue to appreciate like a Bitcoin or in some of the biotech and healthcare names, we think sets you up fairly balanced. So you're not subject to these whipsaws back and forth between value growth uh, cyclical growth, um, but can also at least modestly outperform, you know, as we fortunately have uh, the past three months. Okay, let's take a pause here for a moment. We've got a news alert in the bond market. Uh, 30-year bonds up for auction. Let's get to Rick Santelli. Rick? Thanks, John. How, this auction, a very similar to yesterday's 10-year note auction. So, $24 billion, 30-year bonds, wrapping up a 310-30 package of $120 billion. The yield at the Dutch auction, 2295 2.29 was really the high trade in the one issue market that I saw. So this obviously tailed a bit, not good. And if you look at all the metrics, they're all a bit below average, except for one. Maybe the most important one, the indirect bidders, okay, indirect bidders uh, were 60.6. That isn't good, but the direct bidders were 20.2 which is kind of the opposite you'd want to see if the mantra of yours was that the Japanese are the aggressive buyers, the indirect bid should have been maybe a bit healthier, but the direct bid, those that are coming in, hedge funds, mutual funds, they were very aggressive in this auction, uh, but once again, I was very generous. This could have been a D-plus auction, and it really goes to show you that no matter how much traders think that they can dance between the raindrops. There's not a lot of buying going on in the Treasury complex at these prices and yields. John Ford, hmm. back to you. All right, Rick Santelli, thanks. So, Sarah, we, we were talking a bit uh, mainly about the 10-year. Let's go back to that for a moment. In light of that, how much should investors watch that, if at all? I'm not I'm talking traders. I'm talking investors, given what the Fed is still saying about interest rates. Well, our team watches the 10-year carefully because we expect even more upward pressure on yields as economic recovery takes hold. And remember, this recovery is powered by a massive amount of monetary and fiscal spend globally. In the U.S., we haven't seen anything like this since World War II in terms of fiscal spending. And all of that should push bond yields up. The rising bond yields are great 
again, for some of these stocks that have had historically lower valuations that right. are what we call shorter duration, they're going to deliver now with but, their dividends and their cash flow. But are they great for Roblox? Are they great for, I don't know, I'm thinking about these uh, coupon, the, these stocks that yeah, are coming yeah. out now seen as more risky. They, they seem to react pretty negatively to that. It's an excellent point. The long, long duration equities, those that are, will deliver cash flow sometime far out into the future, but don't do so today. They will be more sensitive to rising rates and are likely to sell off. We've already seen that since early February, a very sharp reversal favoring stocks that are truly more sensibly priced. All right. Well, uh, you've been warned, right? <laughs> Sarah Ketterer, thank you. And also thanks to Troy Gayeski. Now, Texas was among the worst hit states during the pandemic. In fact, the Dallas Fed said the pandemic created the fastest and steepest drop in economic activity in modern history across that state. This week, the state opened at 100 percent capacity, even dropped its mask mandate. Our Kate Rogers is live in Austin with a look at the challenges the Lone Star State now faces. Hey, John. Well, we are live in Austin, known, of course, for its party scene, live music, festivals and barbecue. But both the city and the state as a whole have been greatly impacted by tourism declines over the last year. An estimated $37 billion in economic impact has been lost for Texas in the first nine months of 2020, according to the Texas Travel Alliance. In Austin alone, close to $1 billion has been lost in hotel and lodging revenues over the last year. Big events like South by Southwest virtual again this year after being canceled last year. Some in Austin seem ready to take a step back toward normal here as capacity does increase and they were expecting crowds this weekend and then next week for spring break. But there's a new and interesting wrinkle here in the city as leaders are saying that they will continue to require masks going against the state's orders. Just because Texas is open, John, not everyone is ready to go back to normal. Eric Silverstein owns the peach tortilla and says he will stay at 40 percent capacity and still require masks for his customers. He says there might be some pushback, but it's just not the right time. As a business owner, nobody is more pro-business than me. You know, I want to get back to normal. Um, but I think given the trajectory of where things stand, uh, I think it probably would have been a little bit more prudent to wait 60 or 90 days. Now, the city, of course, says it's keeping its mask mandate in place for now. But last night, the Texas AG said the city and county had just a few hours to comply with the state or else he threatened to sue them. So masks on or masks off. Plenty of drama here in Texas. Back over to you. Yeah, Kate, I'm confused because the state seems to be pushing back against the city. And yet I think I saw that police can still arrest people who don't uh, abide by a business's rules. So businesses can set their own rules, but the city can't. So businesses are, you know, private businesses. They can ask you to wear a mask and have their uh, workers also wear a mask. Now, under the governor's orders, he basically said no one can be jailed or punished uh, for not complying with the state's mandate lift. But as you mentioned, the city and a uh, larger county are saying we are keeping our mask mandate in place. There's a lot of push and pull, though, on how enforceable that actually might be. There could be potential fines. Looks like it'll wind up in court, though, if that does wind up happening. All right. Texas. Uh, Kate, thank you. And coming up, if you want to bet on the retail reopening, but you missed the rally in some of the bigger names, we've got two under-the-radar stocks that one analyst says have a lot of room to run. And we will look at the donut effect happening in the real estate market. As we head to break, here's a look at the NASDAQ 100 top performers right now. You can see them there 
including Marvell Tech, Upta, and Moderna. Be right back. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's been a year since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Consumer confidence suffered a massive shock and was sensitive to each spike in cases. We seem now to be trending in a stronger direction. One defining feature of 2020 consumer behavior was home improvement spending, as many moved out of cities into the suburbs. My next guest says this donut effect will drive a tale of two economies. Joining us now to discuss this and what's next for the consumer is Steve Odlin, president and CEO of the Conference Board and a CNBC contributor. Steve, good to see you. And I can't help but wonder what really happens next with that trend out of cities and into the suburbs. Might it snap back in some places stronger than some people expect because the economy really needs cities, at least certain cities in America, right? Well, yeah, I think, you know, these things kind of ebb and flow. But, you know, the longer the shock period, the longer the recovery period. This is true of any kind of black swan event or any major event. In this case, you know, this pandemic's been upon us for now over a year. And the behavior will continue through the course of 2021, where you have people that are just tired of being cooped up in their small apartments in the cities or moving out uh, to try to get more space and so forth. And you see the office space in the inner cities. You see it right in Manhattan, uh, just not being occupied at all. And there is an incredible drop in, in prices as the supply has come back on the market. So, you know, just like it was in the 60s and 70s, where there was a, a move from the urban to the suburban areas, it's happening again. The question is whether it's going to stick this time, because I think once we get through the crisis, once office is open, you're not going to have 100% remote work. You're not going to have exactly the way we had it. You're going to have somewhere in between. So I think there's going to be office space opened up, but it's still going to then uh, be more convenient to be in cities and so forth. So I think you'll see an ebb back over the course of 2022, 3, 4. But for the time period now, uh, urban centers are clearing out. And that's why I wonder where the opportunity is, because is the culture really going to shift to the suburbs, those restaurants, are they going to shift? What's the economic behavior going to be now versus what we've seen in the past? Like the, the landlords who maybe wouldn't negotiate with those restaurants, they have to shut down. Are those restaurants going to move to the suburbs to reopen or are they just going to get now a better deal from that landlord and reopen in the city? Yeah, it's going to be a combination of the two. Remember, lease terms uh, matter in here as well. So on office lease terms, you've got 10-year, 20-year terms in a lot of cases. So, you know, people have their hands tied. They are negotiating 
lower prices and, and landlords are playing on this. When you get to restaurants and these, you know, cafes and lunch places, they're shorter term leases. And so they have the ability to move more. I don't look, uh, you know, there's been a lot of mobile stuff happening, you know, kiosk pop ups that, you know, that sort of thing, which don't require uh, any real estate uh, or, or at least uh, only minimal. So I think that you're going to see more ebb and flow on these very small businesses. And I think, you know, that's why when you look at consumer confidence and CEO confidence, you see differences. CEO confidence is at a 17 year high driven by large companies. The smaller company CEOs, Main Street, is a little more reticent. And, you know, consumer confidence, while it's rebounding, it still is behind. You know, it's been down since the start of the pandemic. It's on it by a third. So hmm. I think all of this goes into the to the uh, to mantra that it's going to take us a long time to really get back where we were. How should investors think about, for example, the services sector and how it recovers from here? There's the looming possibility of uh, federal minimum, you know, national minimum wage changes. And also, I think the question about automation and how processes are going to change at that level of the services industry, how much is going to be done by people versus machines? Yeah, all of that's real. Um, you know, the, the, the federal minimum wage increase always kills jobs. It, it benefits the people who, of course, are the beneficiaries of it. It does kill jobs. And the reason it does is that people figure out how to do things differently, including automation. It's happened over and over again. But this is really a small impact on the overall economy. And it's a small impact on inflation, which is the other thing that you have to watch through this whole cycle is what's going to happen with inflation. The Fed has said that they're, you know, they're confident that inflation is going to stay low, but their actions are tied to that. And, you know, the, the labor is one one component of that. So I think you're going to see, you know, some of this play in, but it's not going to have a, a, a dramatic effect. Remember, we're still... We still have about 8 million people out of the workforce versus pre-pandemic. And uh, that's, a lot of, uh, that's a lot of play there to still come back in, a lot of, a lot of supply. Yeah, and we, we're going to need them uh, in this economy for sure. Steve Odlin, thank yeah. you. Great to be here. As the economy continues to reopen, my next guest says it's time to ride the discretionary wave and that luxury is the way to go. Joining me now with his under-the-radar reopening plays in retail is Oliver Chen, Managing Director and Senior Analyst at Cohen. Uh, Oliver, luxury is the way to go. This is going to stay a bifurcated economy for a while then, right? Yeah, we're, we're very optimistic with the health of the consumer. The stimulus will be a big benefit. The last 12 months in the S&P has been robust. And also uh, the average of, um, of payments in terms of unemployment and stimulus, those will all be nice positive. Clothing and footwear, PCE, as well as the savings rate being in the 20s versus a 6% average, those are positives too. So our top ideas are Tapestry, as well as My Teresa and Farfetch. And as we think about that, uh, My Teresa and Farfetch are digitally native platforms. Uh, that's a great place to be with luxury goods going online. And luxury will be an attractive category as consumers are optimistic and all the opulism uh, that may happen, we're very bullish as well. So is that why Nordstrom's doing this, I guess, weird thing and splitting off its digital business from bricks and mortar, even though omnichannel is so much of what people are talking about? Just that need to create a luxury model that's digital native, you think? Yeah, I think it's very critical. I mean, the announcement at, at Saks as well in terms of really focusing on, on that business and investing behind that business. It takes a lot of capital and R&D as well as IT. 
and scale to run that business. Uh, Nordstrom's had a, a very pioneering approach with Nordstrom Local, the local market strategy, very customer service orientated. So this digital focus is here to stay. It's accelerated and it will only be more and more important as customers are very mobile first and looking for exceptional convenience. Yeah, maybe I was thinking of Saks. I always get Nordstrom and Saks mixed up. Now, that's not to say that you are bearish on the Walmarts and Targets of the world just because you like luxury, right? Yeah, exactly. I think what we're seeing is a certain degree of bifurcation where customers are looking for strong value. Costco's also pulled back. It's about down 15% year to date. Um, that's an idea we like as well. So thinking about value in the future of retail, less is more as well. Um, Walmart and Target, they're multi-category broadline retailers. We do have shoppers uh, going fewer trips to the stores, but buying more. And being multi-category is a good place to be, as well as offering exceptional value. You know, Walmart's pioneering strategy was everyday low prices. So that continues to resonate with the consumer, which is looking for value as well as luxury. Okay. Well, it sounds like opportunities to be had at both ends. Oliver, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Coming up in another high-profile IPO, South Korea's Amazon coupon soaring in its debut. We will look at whether the high valuation is warranted. Plus, the rise of the metaverse, why more Americans might find themselves spending time in a sci-fi dream than in reality in 2021. And take a look at the NASDAQ right now, up more than 2%. The index has now rallied more than 100% since that 52-week low and off just about 6% from its yearly high. The exchange will be right back. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's check the markets. All three major indices in rally mode with the NASDAQ up more than 2.5%, leading the gains once again positive for the month. Let's check the sectors. Ten of the 11 are in the green with technology and communication services leading the way. Financials in the red. And let's take a look at some movers. Semiconductor stocks making a comeback today with Corvo, uh, AMD and NVIDIA among the leaders. Yesterday, every component in the SMH ETF ended in the red. The EV name getting a jolt today. Neo, Nikola and Tesla, all those names are all in the green. Investors betting on gaming stocks today, too. Boyd Gaming. MGM, Win, and Penn National leading. So it's not working. Oracle's deep in the red after earnings. GE is the worst performer in the S&P, falling on a downgrade at Oppenheimer. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, John. Hello, everyone. The House has passed two bills that expand background checks for gun sales. It's part of a move by Democrats to enact the first major new gun control laws in more than two decades. New York City's mayor and more than 50 Democratic New York state lawmakers are now demanding Governor Andrew Cuomo resign. They've signed a letter calling on Cuomo to step down because of sexual harassment claims and a cover-up of COVID death figures at nursing homes. Miami Heat Center Myers Leonard has been fined $50,000 and also suspended. That's for using an anti-Semitic slur. It happened during a video game live stream earlier this week. Myers has apologized. And Mexican lawmakers have passed a bill that legalizes recreational marijuana use. 
If it becomes law, Mexico will become one of the largest marijuana markets in the world. And watch the news with Shepard Smith tonight to see what it could mean for the U.S. to be sandwiched between two countries that openly sell marijuana. John, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you. Now coming up, it's been a huge year for Bitcoin, up more than 90% in 2021 so far. Goldman Sachs sees more demand ahead. We will tell you why. And it's time for what we call show and tell. We show the chart, then tell the story. Today's chart is Bumble, the stock higher following a revenue beat its first quarter as a public company. CEO Whitney Wolf joining Squawk Box this morning and discussing the opportunities she sees for growth. We still think there are a lot of levers to pull to convert the non-paying customers. Lower price points, higher price points, um, consumables, one-offs, subscription um, offerings. There's, there's really a bevy of opportunity ahead. Again, I don't want to give any particular guidance. We've shared everything that we're comfortable sharing right now in our earnings yesterday. But the opportunity ahead is massive. If you think about what a single individual spends in the real world, their dating wallet, um, it's far beyond what you're seeing as our ARPU right now. And so you can imagine the opportunity to extend that dating wallet uh, beyond where it is today. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here with their takes, CNBC.com technology editor Steve Kovac, our dear Drabosa, and making his Rapid Fire debut, platformer editor and CNBC contributor Casey Newton. First topic, the Amazon of South Korea making its nicey debut. E-commerce giant Coupang is trading at about 50 bucks a share after originally pricing at 35. The four and a half billion dollars it raised makes it the largest U.S. IPO so far this year and the largest by an Asian company on an American exchange since Alibaba in 2014. And that's huge news for the SoftBank Vision Fund, which has a hefty stake in that company. Deirdre, you've been following this for us, but I don't know. I mean, this kind of valuation of market cap on a country whose operations are pretty much entirely based in a country of 51 million people right now? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, you know what, John? I'm, I'm kind of with you. I know we asked the Vision Fund partner this morning. There's a question from you saying, what are the international plans? And Lydia Jett told us there's, you know, enough to do in Korea. That's an important point. But this is a company that has been called Korea's answer to Amazon. And what I would say is that it is far from that simple. I mean, it has one thing. It does, Amazon has one thing that it doesn't, and that is a high-margin, profitable cloud business. Coupang um, has you know, seen incredible growth, but does it have that profit engine? Not clear. It still relies on external capital, like that $2 billion injection from SoftBank a few years ago, and capital markets, right? They have to believe that this company is going to eventually be profitable, but for now it's cash flow negative. Mm -hmm. Amazon was cash flow positive eight years into its existence, so it's not that simple. Yeah. I, Casey, you buying it? Well, look, if, if we've learned one thing over the past year, it's that the runway for e-commerce looks almost totally unlimited, right? Like if there was ever a moment for a company like Coupon to turn itself around and get cash flow positive, it would be right now when so many of us are still stuck at home. <laughs> but Steve, I mean, that runway can drop off pretty quickly when it comes to the market. Yeah, and that's totally true. And what's going to happen once we start getting vaccinated again and getting out into the real world and going to shops and bars and restaurants is that momentum that we've seen over the last year now going to continue in e-commerce. It, it, it's going to be a really interesting experiment to play out. Yeah, fantasy sports, too. Like, I wonder, uh, are people's attentions going to turn to wasting their money? And I mean, spending their money 
investing their money? I don't know. What are they doing, <laughs> Steve, in, in other ways? <laughs> Depends who you're asking. <laughs> that, and that, that's right. It's, it's, uh, I mean, we've seen the pandemic fueled, you know, trading on Robin Hood. We've seen it all. It, it, does that all clubhouse chats, is that all just going to disappear? Are we going to start going out in the real world again? I don't know. Uh, well, let's move on. Next up, gaming platform Roblox saw shares surge more than 50% in its trading debut, despite not being profitable yet. But it's expecting big growth as it bets on a concept that once seemed to be a science fiction fantasy called the metaverse, virtual world where people can play, work, and socialize. Steve, you wrote a piece trying to define the metaverse. Right now, in this Roblox metaverse, there are a lot of little kids. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I think the best way to explain it is if you've seen the movie Ready Player One, that's it. You strap into a VR headset or right today it's mostly on tablets and phones and game consoles and you're inside this virtual playground where anything goes. You, there's a there's, Roblox has its own economy inside fueled by this Robux currency. And the idea here is the ambition is they're going to have millions or billions of people hmm. interacting inside this metaverse, this virtual world, doing everything from not just gaming like it is today, but they see it for shopping, for work, for play, for just socializing like we were just talking about. We've gotten so yeah. used to socializing digitally. What if we do it and teleport to each other? That's how they see it. But Casey, that's where the, that's where the there's, coming from. Casey, there's inflation inside these metaverses. I mean... Something that you paid a certain amount of Robux for five years ago is entirely different today, but investors are betting real dollars right now, right? Yeah, and look, I think there's a huge amount of opportunity here, but the thing that I just keep thinking about is platform risk. Ro Roblox right now exists largely at the discretion of an Apple. It arguably is already operating an app store within Apple's app store, something Apple has traditionally looked down on. So I believe in the metaverse, but I don't see how Roblox gets there unless it starts building its own hardware that it has total control over. So I'm actually curious if, if Steve has looked into that and whether that's something Roblox might be considering well i also wonder deirdre yeah i mean I we talked on. to one of their deirdre, investors about that uh and because i know we've talked about the app store before apple's app store um you think that a lot of uh, developers are getting value out of that roblox's model is kind of similar with the amount of take that they're getting from developers who are operating i mean as they get bigger if they're really worth this valuation are they going to run into problems eventually with developers saying well we don't want to give you all that money well, the thing is, when you have a metaverse, the opportunities are limited. Also, I just have to respond to Steve really quickly. Ready Player One was a better book than movie. Okay, back to my point, uh, John. They're looking at things like advertising in the metaverse. And then sort of the opportunity for monetization is almost, you know, limitless if you look at some of the other digital advertising companies and how much money they make. But here's my question. When we talk about a metaverse, can there only be one? Can Fortnite have one and Roblox and Minecraft or anyone else? Because I've got two nephews, five and eight years old. They don't think Roblox is cool anymore. They think Fortnite is where it's at. So I don't know, Steve, like, can you have a number of them or does everyone have to get on the same page? No, I, I think it can be totally separate metaverses. I mean, both of these games are massive, and they're already building towards that. And there's no reason why you can't bounce between from one or the other. But you're only going to have just the way people bounce between Facebook one, and right? Twitter. 
Yeah, and concert, exactly, yeah. And so you tune in, you pay for the concert, you see Travis Scott in Fortnite, and you see Little Nas X in Roblox. You can do both, I think. But to Casey's point earlier about the AR and VR and this platform thing, we know Apple's working on these digital glasses. Facebook said they're going to release their first this year. And yeah, that's a risk for Roblox. They are going to have to play by the rules of Facebook and Apple and whoever builds the hardware platforms that these metaverses are going to live on. And right now, we talked to some of Roblox's investors yesterday, my colleague Ari Levy and I, and they seem okay with that. They're just happy getting these tools in front of billions of people and letting them build the world and just seeing how it goes from there. They're happy just living in the digital space and not creating their own hardware. At least that's their thinking for now. Yeah, there are a lot of companies out there right now, like young companies getting platform valuations as if they are going to build sustainable, profitable platforms into the future. And those of us who have covered this for a while know that that's really hard. They don't all get there. All right, let's move on for a moment. Speaking of Roblox, the company can thank Kathy Wood for a boost in its shares today. It jumped as high as 12% in earlier trading after Wood's firm, ARK Investment Management, revealed a giant stake. Her firm purchased more than half a million shares worth $36 million for its ETF, the ARKW. ARKW is up about 5% today, 7% this week after getting hit hard by uh, last week's tech sell-off. Casey, you got some thoughts about, you know, Roblox and, and this move by Kathy Wood? Yeah, well, you know, funnily enough, I also have a five and eight year old nephew and they love Roblox. So I, I may be a little <laughs> bit more bullish than Deirdre is. Um, you know, look, I, th- there's a sort of a truism in social networks that whoever owns sort of the, the youngest computer users of the moment owns the future. And I think there's a great argument that Roblox just owns the youngest computer users right now. They're spending a lot of money today. Presumably, they're going to uh, spend a lot more in the future. And frankly, they've given Roblox a huge opportunity to build out a whole set of, of social products. Uh, if you look at what you know, Facebook and, and Twitter and others have done in the social space, Roblox now has an incredible foundation to build around. So it's not at all surprising to me that investors are flocking to this stock right now. Yeah, I hear you. Same time, though, Marvel did, uh, sorry, Disney did a good job buying Marvel, buying Lucasfilm to have different slots to move people into as they age. It's not, it wasn't for them just about owning the youngest. We'll see. All right, finally, the most expensive NFT ever sold went, forget this, more than $69 million at Christie's today. But if that's too rich for your blood, Taco Bell is coming to the rescue. This week, the company sold out its first set of menu-themed NFTs in less than 30 minutes on the online marketplace Rarible, the five collectible tokens featuring, you guessed it, pictures of tacos. were listed for about $2 each, but sold for hundreds at auction. And they're reportedly available on the secondary market for upwards of 20 grand. Deirdre, I mean, I'm hungry. I haven't had a chance to eat lunch yet, but I'm not paying more than 100 bucks for a taco. <laughs> Well, you can't eat it, John. So what? Can't even eat it. You know, over the last few weeks, and we've we've been talking about this a lot on Squawk Alley. So I've been asking myself, can anything, literally anything, be an NFT? And I think now we have our answer from Taco Bell. My question, though, is I think this is real technology. It's here to stay. When do we get away from the kitschy stuff like Taco Bell digital pictures? I don't know. And into real stuff like when are nfts and the technology going to underline the first stock issued and an ipo and sort of change 
the way that we look at holding kind of real things, not just kitschy stuff from Taco Bell. I don't know if you can go to IPOs for real things anymore, Deirdre. Steve, what do you think? <laughs> Fair. I, I think it's, uh, well, it is, it is fun, but there are real uses being used right now. Rob Gronkowski is selling virtual uh, trading cards as NFTs. There's the NBA Top Shot website, where, which has licensed material from the NBA, so you can buy a digital version of LeBron dunking or something like that. And those have real value to people. If, if you can feel like, I just bought this unique thing, yeah. it creates the scarcity, just like a physical cardboard trading card. And, and that's where some of the value for these collectors are coming in. Casey, I tell you, I get it if this becomes like the certificate that authenticates an actual item. Somehow I can see that being more the mainstream use of an NFT five, ten years from now. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, look, really successful things often start out looking incredibly dumb or like toys. And so I think a reason to be bullish on NFTs is the fact that, you know, the genius brand marketers at Taco Bell have figured out how to drive a news cycle with them, right? I think the NBA Top Shot stuff is, is super interesting <laughs> as, a, as a former basketball card uh, collector. So, you know, I think NFT, uh, NFTs are having an amazing day. I think they're, ha- they're going to have an incredible year. Yeah. NFTs and Bitcoin. Casey, have you bought any? You know, I not wonder if yet. Casey's my, bought any top at, at my old job, I was it was like prohibited to buy any cryptocurrency, but I'm in a, a whole new independent world now, and now maybe I should think about it. Are <laughs> NFTs cryptocurrency? Steve, what what is this stuff? I mean, we can buy sports memorabilia. I don't know. Steve, your verdict. <laughs> I want oh, to know. Sorry, you're talking to me. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no, I talk no. to you sometimes. <laughs> I'm, I'm emphatic here. Yeah, but, it's the delay. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 not a value like it's not the same as Bitcoin because I I, I'd say you're actually getting a digital item that's unique to you. And again, if if it's in these areas, especially sports seems to be the most practical use case right now. And also maybe, you know, it's Sotheby's is getting into it. Some like real art that is some real value there. Now, you know, I'm not going to buy a McDonald's McRib NFT anytime soon. It's a fun joke. It's good for headlines. But you can definitely see it expanding into these digital versions of collectibles like stamps or trading cards or what have you that we've been collecting forever and have mm. value. Maybe a spicy chicken NFT, though. That's popular. There's a shortage yeah, that of that. All yeah. right, guys. <laughs> Speaking of the NFT craze, Noah Davis is, uh, of Christie's is going to join Power Lunch next hour to talk about that record-breaking Beeple NFT it just sold. Do not miss it. That's it for Rapid Fire today. Thank you to our panel, Steve Kovac, Deidre Bosa, and Casey Newton. And now coming up, Bitcoin topping $58,000 this year. We're going to have a closer look at the tailwinds that could keep the crypto rally going. Be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Bitcoin has had a heck of a growth spurt in the year since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Let's take a look at where Bitcoin was a year ago. Just this big, the low on March 11, 2020 was around 8,500 bucks. Fast forward to today, it's topping 56,000. It's a meteoric rise up more than 550% in that time, a lot more than that. For more on what's driving the Bitcoin rally, let's bring in Kate Rooney. Kate, what gives? Hey, John. I heard your NFT conversation right before this, but Bitcoin, separate crypto conversation. Uh, Very interesting, though. Bitcoin is climbing again today, though, as investors' appetite for growth in tech tech stocks returns. And we've got some new stimulus adding to its appeal as an inflation hedge. 
Bitcoin is up for the seventh straight day this week. That's the longest winning streak of the year so far. It's above 57,000 today, getting closer to that all-time high of 58,000 hit last month. In the past year, Bitcoin's strongest bull case has really been the idea that it's a hedge against inflation. That use case promoted by Paul Tudor Jones and some other billionaire investors. Adding to fears of inflation this week, we had stimulus passed in the U.S. The European Central Bank today is saying it would accelerate its bond buying program. And despite some muted CPI data this week, some economists do worry that more stimulus could overheat the economy and a weaker U.S. dollar could make Bitcoin, which isn't tied to a central bank, more attractive. The other big bull case, institutional investors getting in. This week, we had Goldman Sachs president and COO saying that the bank is exploring how to meet rising Bitcoin demand from its customers while still staying on the right side of regulation. Another tailwind, President Biden's pick for SEC, Gary Gensler, was approved by a Senate committee and cleared a key hurdle for his confirmation. And despite his comments about cracking down on money laundering in crypto, he's really seen as a forward thinking regulator about the asset. He did teach a class about blockchain at MIT. But despite being called a safe haven asset, Bitcoin is still a speculative and volatile investment. It crashed to $43,000 just a couple weeks ago. But those high growth trades are back in favor this week after that steep sell-off. John, back to you. Yeah, people have forgotten, I guess, a couple years ago where it crashed uh, pretty severely, a lot more than that, too. So, Kate, with the frenzy around all things blockchain and crypto, NFTs, et cetera. What's going on with Ethereum? Because so many different applications uh, of blockchain crypto are built on top of that. That's a great question. The buzz around NFTs that you guys were talking about is helping Ether. That's the second largest cryptocurrency. In the case of Beeple, that $69 million NFT, that was bought with Ethereum. So the thought here is that if people are paying for NFTs with Ethereum, even a 250-year-old auction house, you had Christie's accepting Ethereum, that's sort of seen as a legitimizing moment for that cryptocurrency. And you have the the speculative frenzy still going on. People that feel like they may have missed out on the Bitcoin rally are sort of looking to the next big thing. So that cryptocurrency has more than doubled this year. Yeah, I wonder, are people just really parking money in Ethereum, though? Or are they quickly getting dollars into Ethereum, buying that, and then that's it? I don't know. We'll see. Kate, thank you. Coming up, Jeep has long held the title of king of the SUV, but the brand lost some of that allure in the past year. Will bringing back the Wagoneer turn things around? And let's take a look at social media names rallying for a second day. Snap, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, all see nice gains. We're back in two. Welcome back. Jeep is betting that old school luxury is going to give it a welcome shot in the arm. The automaker bringing back two iconic nameplates, but they don't come cheap. Phil LeBeau joins me with the details. Phil, the Wagoneer, I don't know. When I think of Wagoneer, I don't think about luxury in today's sense. I think more of like what Cadillac was 20 years ago before that revamp with the Matrix. Do they have some refurb to do here? Well, it's not looking. The the new Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer, they do not look like the old ones. Let me show you the new ones, and then we'll show you the old ones. And the new ones, definitely an emphasis on luxury and big, expensive items within that vehicle. The Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer are being brought back by Jeep. The regular Wagoneer will have a base price at just under $58,000. The Grand Wagoneer, it starts at just under $87,000. And get this, you want to trick it out? You want to put everything you can in it? 
the price tag will be $111,000. Now, the old Wagoneer that we remember in the 70s and 80s, they were sold from 63 through 91. And you can buy a, a refurbished one now. Those prices are at record highs. What Jeep is doing is trying to play off the nostalgia of that name to sell the new Wagoneer. I think when you start with a name that already exists, and even the name Wagoneer, I think for a lot of people, they're going to get it pretty immediately based on the name. And that definitely helps break through the noise, break through the cutter. This is important for Jeep. Now, even though the luxury SUV market is a limited market, you're talking about people who also would be considering a Lincoln Navigator or a Cadillac Escalade. It is important. And Jeep sales have been trending a little bit lower over the last couple of years. Now, some of that is the market overall, and some of that is the fact that Jeep well, when you look at it, it's had a heck of a run, especially over the last decade, but it peaked out at 1.6, just under 1.6 million vehicles sold uh, back in 2019, I believe. So what you're looking at right now, or 2018, excuse me, what you're looking at as you look at Stellantis, which is the parent of Jeep, remember, Fiat Chrysler merged with PSA Peugeot, and now it is Stellantis. This is Stellantis saying, we want to make sure that Jeep continues to grow because it is the brand with the most sales for Stellantis, which has a, a whole slew of them now, whether it's Peugeot, Ram, Jeep. It's got a lot of brands that it's going to have to try to keep growing. Bill, quickly, if you can, with the trends we're seeing, the move toward the suburbs that we were just talking about earlier in the show, is this right. an ideal time for Jeep to do this? Yeah, I think to a certain extent. And look, there's always going to be a market for the luxury large SUV. But let's be clear, with that price tag, the Grand Wagoneer starting at $87,000, I mean, you're getting into rarefied air. It's a limited number of buyers up there who will pay that price. Yeah, starting there. That's like Tesla SUV territory, too, right? I don't know oh, if yeah. it's the same buyer. All right. Well, different buyer. We'll see. That Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer kind of refurbing the old brands. I like it when they try to do that. You know, we'll see. We'll see if that pays off. Okay, that'll do it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.